Section 4 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1. Sensory Appreciation in its Relation to Man's Evolutionary Development. Inadequacy of Subconscious Guidance and Control to Meet the Rapid Changes of Civilized Life. In the interest of readers who may not be familiar with the thesis of my earlier book, Man's Supreme Inheritance, I wish to point out that in the arguments therein set forth, it was contended that human beings cannot progress satisfactorily in civilization whilst they remain dependent upon subconscious, instinctive guidance and control. For the reason that in civilization, that is, in a plan of life where changes of environment have occurred and continue to occur more rapidly than in the uncivilized state, Man's continued dependence upon precisely this subconscious guidance and control has resulted, either directly or indirectly, in the gradual development of imperfections and defects in the use of the human organism. The effect of these rapid changes upon a creature who heretofore had experienced only slow and gradual changes of environment and was still subconsciously guided and controlled could hardly fail to be harmful inasmuch as many of his instincts, in consequence of these changes, came to survive their usefulness, whilst many of those new instincts, which were developed during his quick attempts to meet the new demands of civilization, proved to be unreliable. Footnote. The word instinct is used in this work to indicate established habits inherited or developed. As I wrote in Man's Supreme Inheritance, Chapter 6, I define instinct as the result of the accumulated subconscious experiences of man at all stages of his development, which continue with us until, singly or collectively, we reach the stage of conscious control. And a footnote. This degree of unreliability increased as time went on, until an observant minority became aware of a gradual but most serious deterioration. A deterioration, however, which unfortunately they recognized as a physical deterioration only, and which, at what must be considered a psychological moment in human development, they attempted to set right by the adoption of quote-unquote physical exercises. For all those who are concerned with the urgency of present-day problems, the point of interest in the foregoing lies in the fact that man has been, and still is, unable to adapt himself quickly enough to the increasingly rapid changes involved in that plan of life which we call civilization. It will be generally conceded, I think, that the results of man's attempts to adapt himself to this plan of life, as they are manifested today, in the general makeup of the organism of the human creature and in the application of this organism to all the activities of life are unsatisfactory and most disappointing. It is only necessary to read the daily papers and note the records of crime, of unbalanced human thought and activity in all spheres, of the quote-unquote trial and error methods of our leaders in their efforts at reform in politics, social conditions, industry, religion, and education, in order to be firmly convinced of the comparative failure of our plan of life, and of the shortcomings of the different institutions which are part and parcel of it. 
In order then to arrive at correct conclusions concerning man's comparative failure to adapt himself satisfactorily to the changing conditions of civilization, it will be necessary to make an examination and comparison of the evolutionary processes which obtained in the savage state and those which are operative in the civilized state today. At this juncture, I wish to make clear the sense in which I use the word psychophysical. The term psychophysical is used both here and throughout my works to indicate the impossibility of separating physical and mental operations in our conception of the working of the human organism. As I wrote in Man's Supreme Inheritance, in my opinion the two must be considered entirely interdependent, and even more closely knit than is implied by such a phrase. Hence I use the term psychophysical activity to indicate all human manifestations, and psychophysical mechanism to indicate the instrument which makes these manifestations possible. Psychophysical activity must not, however, always be considered as involving equal action and reaction of the processes concerned, for, as I hope to show, the history of the stages of man's development reveals manifestations of human activity which, at certain stages, show a preponderance on what is called the physical side, and at other stages a preponderance on what is called the mental side. I am forced to use the words physical and mental here and throughout my argument, because there are no other words at present which adequately express the manifestations of psychophysical activity present at these various stages. Not in any sense because the physical and the mental can be separated as such. I wish therefore to make it clear that whenever I use the word mental, it is to be understood as representing all processes or manifestations which are generally recognized as not wholly physical, and vice versa the word physical as representing all processes and manifestations which are generally recognized as not wholly mental. Comparison of Evolutionary Processes in the Savage and Civilized States In the first place, it is important to remember that during the animal and savage stages of evolution, the processes concerned with development were processes which operated very slowly. Indeed, experts assure us that it took millions of years of the evolutionary process to produce the animal, not to speak of the savage. Footnote. In this book, the word evolution is used to indicate all processes which are involved in the quickening of the potentialities of the creature at the different stages of growth and development, and which are necessary to the success of his attempts to satisfy the varying needs of an ever-changing environment, and to reach a plane of constructive conscious control of the individual organism. And a footnote. Each later stage of development was the result of the experiences undergone by the creature in the process of satisfying the new and varying needs arising during his progress from the savage to the civilized state, and years of repetition of these experiences were probably needed to establish them as part and parcel of what is understood as instinct, for on a subconscious plane of development continuous repetition is essential to the establishment of instinctive accuracy. In obedience to the fundamental law of self-preservation, the animal and the savage were forced day by day to make use of their mechanisms 
in securing the food and drink necessary to their existence and in attempting to thwart the designs of their common enemies. The evolutionary processes associated with these varying experiences, essential to the continued existence and development of the organism, ensure that comparatively desirable combination in human activity, namely an adequate and correct use of the psychophysical organism as a whole, together with an adequate use at the same time of the parts of that organism. This meant that the creature reached the stage of his development to which we shall refer to as the beginning of civilization, endowed with mechanisms functioning subconsciously in accordance with the dictates of instinct, which was the product of experiences gained at an earlier stage in connection with the evolutionary processes we have outlined. At this earlier stage, the demands made upon the creature were such that he could meet them satisfactorily by the subconscious use of the mechanisms involved. For his environment rarely changed. His needs remained practically the same. And in this comparatively static environment, he would be able to meet a need satisfactorily by the slowly operating forces at his command. But the attempts of the creature to meet the demands of this civilized state called for a higher and still higher standard in the development of his potentialities. Here his most trying problem arose from the fact that his environment continued to change at an increasingly rapid pace, and that these changes brought about a more rapid development of new needs. The response to the stimuli resulting from these new needs had to be a much quicker response than any in his previous experience. For progress in growth and development under the civilizing plan involved ever-increasing needs and called for a correspondingly increasing speed in the matter of response to stimuli. Furthermore, and this is all important, the demands thus made upon the psychophysical processes generally called mental processes, which were comparatively unused in his case, were destined to increase very rapidly whilst the demands made upon the psychophysical processes generally called physical processes, which were comparatively highly developed in his case, were destined to decrease, and their spheres of activity actually to become more and more limited with the advance of time. These experiences indicate that in order to meet satisfactorily the new demands of civilization, it was essential that man should acquire a new way of directing and controlling the mechanisms of the psychophysical organism as a whole. Mechanisms which in the savage state had been kept up of necessity to a high standard of coordination by their use in securing the creature's daily food and in meeting the great physical demands of this mode of life. This serves to indicate that at some period of his evolutionary progress, the human creature must have reached a psychological moment to pass from the subconscious to the conscious plane of control. The change from a subconscious to a conscious plane of control would have involved a knowledge on man's part of the means whereby he would be able to command a conscious reasoning direction and control of his psychophysical mechanisms in all activity. With this knowledge, the human creature would have had some chance of meeting satisfactorily the increasing demands of his ever-changing environment, and of commanding a continuous growth and development of the organism itself, 
that marvelous psychophysical instrument which holds within itself the potentialities for the satisfying of such demands. Unfortunately, the process of reasoning out the means whereby, in connection with the gaining of his ends, was not and evidently could not have been adequately established as a habit in the human creature at this psychological moment in his development. Else, a consideration of the means whereby of his development under savage conditions would have led him to a due consideration of these means whereby, in their relation to satisfactory development under civilized conditions, and he would then have realized that the demands made upon him in the civilized state must necessarily be different in many ways from those made upon him in a savage state. Footnote. I judge from the numerous queries received from readers of man's supreme inheritance that many people are not quite clear as to what is meant by the expressions means whereby and end gaining. In the endeavor to make my meaning clear, I would point out that whenever a person sets out to achieve a particular end, whether this end is the development of potentialities or the eradication of defects, peculiarities or misuse, his procedure will be based on one of two principles, which I have called the end-gaining and the means-whereby principles. The end-gaining principle involves a direct procedure on the part of the person endeavoring to gain the desired end. This direct procedure is associated with dependence upon subconscious guidance and control, leading in cases where a condition of malcoordination is present to an unsatisfactory use of the mechanisms and to an increase in the defects and peculiarities already existing. The means whereby principle, on the other hand, involves a reasoning consideration of the causes of the conditions present, and an indirect instead of a direct procedure on the part of the person endeavoring to gain the desired end. This indirect procedure is that psychophysical activity associated with constructive conscious guidance and control and with the consequent satisfactory use of the mechanisms which establishes the conditions essential to the increasing development of potentialities. Under these conditions, defects, peculiarities and misuse are not likely to be present within the organism. In this connection, I wish it to be understood that throughout this book I use the term conscious guidance and control to indicate primarily a plane to be reached rather than a method of reaching it. And a footnote. Hence, whilst it was desirable that the change from the subconscious to the conscious plane of control should have taken place, it is evident that man had not reached that advanced stage of evolution which would have made it possible for him to effect it. For experience shows that, although with the advance of civilization, conditions have continually changed and become more and more complex, man's fundamental psychophysical method of adapting himself to these changing conditions has remained the same, with the unsatisfactory and disappointing results to which I have referred. Complexity and Complications of Civilized Life People attempt to account for the difficulties of civilized life by saying, life is so complex. This means that, though they are conscious of the presence of an undue stress and strain, 
they are prepared for the most part to accept the position, and consequently live on with the conviction that a growing complexity is the natural result of civilized life. What they fail to recognize is that this condition is the result of their own or others ill-considered and gaining attempts to surmount the difficulties encountered during the progress of civilization. This serves to show how the egotism of the average human being is developed out of all proportion to the degree of successful endeavor that he can legitimately claim for himself. This fact, however, rarely seems to reach his sphere of consciousness, and hence the improbability of his awakening to his own individual shortcomings, an awakening which would lead him to attempt to reach that desirable stage of consciousness and reasoning, where he would have the conviction borne in upon him that the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Not in the complexity of the civilizing plan, but in our unreasoning attitude towards its demands. An attitude associated with a continued dependence upon subconscious guidance and direction in our end-gaining attempts to meet these demands. The prevailing condition of stress and strain caused by these attempts is harmful to the organism as a whole, and if it continues to increase as rapidly as in the past, it is likely so to undermine our reserve forces that the most serious forms of organic derangement and kinesthetic perversion may be predicted. Indeed, we might say that a dangerous stage of perversion and delusion has already been reached when the attempts at solution of all the problems of life seem to call for complexity rather than simplicity in procedure. We even reach a stage when the most simple means whereby in accomplishment become the most difficult. A very interesting instance in this connection occurred in my teaching experience. A well-known man of scientific attainments had great difficulty for some days with a simple practical problem of psychomechanics concerned with his re-education. When he came to his lesson one morning, he said, I know now what is the matter with us all. This work of yours is too simple for us. In fact, the complexity needlessly introduced into the act of living in general is equaled only by the complexity which we build up individually in our attempts at accomplishment in specific spheres, as for instance in the sphere of education. Taking this word in its widest sense, whether in learning something or in learning to do something, and also in any process of self-instruction. All acts concerned with learning something or learning to do something call for psychophysical activity, and the standard of efficiency in these spheres depends in every case upon the standard of the creature's satisfactory employment of his psychophysical self in the performance of these acts. The imperfectly coordinated child or adult, for instance, will not be likely to reach the standard of effective functioning enjoyed by the satisfactorily coordinated child or adult. The former will experience difficulties with which the latter will not be beset. Footnote. The word coordination is ordinarily used at the present time in as narrow and limited a sense as the words relaxation, readjustment, re-education, etc. In view of this fact, I consider it necessary to give some idea of the more comprehensive sense in which it is used in this work. 
I use the word coordination, both in its conception and in its application, to convey the idea of coordination on a general and not a specific basis. Specific coordination of any specific part of the organism, such as the muscles of the arm or leg, may be brought about by means of a direct process, during which process, however, new defects in the use of the organism in general will certainly be cultivated, whilst others already present will become more pronounced. These harmful conditions will not be cultivated if the specific coordination is brought about by means of an indirect process involving primarily the general coordination of the psychophysical organism. That is to say, an integrated condition in which all the factors continue to make for satisfactory psychomechanical use. This distinction between the specific and the general applies also to the terms readjustment, reeducation, and relaxation, as I use them in this book. For in general reeducation, specific defects are eradicated in process. And a footnote. In the case of the imperfectly coordinated child or adult, there may be said to be serious complications in his psychomechanics. In other words, the mechanical working of the structures of the organism is out of order, and complications and difficulties therefore are inevitable. On the other hand, in the case of the satisfactorily coordinated child or adult, the mechanical working of the structures of the organism is not complicated but complex in the sense that, although there are present a large number of factors or means which are related to one another, like the different parts in the mechanism of a motor car, the act of using them, like the act of driving a car or any other machine in running order, is one and simple. Satisfactory psychophysical activity depends upon psychomechanical structures which are complex, but of which the mechanical working does not become complicated until the mechanisms get out of order. Take, for instance, the simple act of learning to write. In the case of the average badly coordinated pupil, there will be present certain impeding factors, into the detail of which we will enter later on, on account of which learning to write becomes a comparatively complicated proceeding. However expert the teacher may be, the pupil does not possess the psychophysical equipment which would enable him to take adequate advantage of the instructions given to him. His first attempt to carry these out will reveal defects, and the subsequent attempts new defects, each request from his teacher to do something, and each injunction not to do something else, means a building up of a series of specific psychophysical acts towards the given end, namely learning to write. This means that although the end may be gained, the result as a whole will not be as satisfactory as it might be, for nothing will have been done in a way of re-educating on a general basis to correct the mal-coordinated conditions connected with the use and control of the mechanisms when employed in the act of writing. In the endeavor to overcome the impeding factors concerned, the teacher builds up for the pupil a complicated procedure in order to gain the specific end. For the act of writing demands correct direction and control in the use of the fingers, wrist, and arm, and the standard of success reached in these particulars depends upon the coordinated use of the mechanisms in general. Footnote. 
as I wrote in Man's Supreme Inheritance in connection with drawing. Any attentive and thoughtful observer who will watch the movement and position of these children's fingers, hand, wrist, arm, neck, and body generally, during the varying attempts to draw straight or crooked lines, cannot fail to note the lack of coordination between these parts. The fingers are probably attempting to perform the duties of the arm, the shoulders are humped, the head twisted on one side. In short, energies are being projected to parts of the mechanism which have little or no influence on the performance of the desired act of drawing, and the mere waste projection of such energies alone is almost sufficient to nullify the purpose in view. And a footnote. Coordinated use of the organism means that there is satisfactory control of a complex mechanism. In a recent plan of life, the human creature would be in the enjoyment of a coordinated use of the whole organism, and comparatively speaking, there would not be any impeding factors such as we have indicated to be overcome. The pupil would have at command a satisfactory psychomechanical organism, that is, he would possess the psychophysical equipment necessary for the ready assimilation of the teacher's instructions, and if these instructions were correct, their assimilation would enable the pupil to reason out the means whereby to the desired end, which would then be gained in that simple and easy manner characteristic of all successful accomplishment. Recognition and Satisfaction of Essential Needs in Relation to Evolutionary Progress In the foregoing, I have attempted to indicate the urgency of the problems concerned with the evolutionary progress of the human creature an urgency which will be generally conceded. And a consideration of the psychophysical means whereby of such progress may be helpful at this point. Satisfactory evolutionary progress demands a continuous advancement in individual psychophysical activity from stage to stage of cultivation and development. The primary desire or need in this connection is that individual desire or need which is the stimulus to the development of those psychophysical potentialities which enable the creature to meet satisfactorily the demands of the processes essential to the satisfaction of the need. The adequate development of these potentialities connotes a satisfactory standard of the coordinated use of the organism. It is obvious that a person who is satisfied with his present position on the evolutionary plane with his present ideas, opinions, ways of life, etc., will not have the desire or feel the need for changing conditions which, consciously or subconsciously, he deems to be satisfactory. All advancement, however, is associated with the discovery and acceptance of ideas, principles, ways of living, etc., which are new to the individual. Anyone who has established a desire to live on, influenced only by past psychophysical experiences, and who refuses to seek consciously for and to acquire new experiences, cannot expect any real advancement on the evolutionary plane. In such a case, there are present impeding factors, such as a narrow outlook, a condition of rigidity, an undue dread of psychophysical changes, a lack of reasoning in the sphere of guidance and control, etc., all of which tend to prevent the subject from conceiving of, or seeing, or accepting, 
anything outside his present experiences, these experiences being the sum total of the experiences which he has inherited, represented by his race instincts, plus his comparatively limited individual experience in everyday life. The establishment of psychophysical conditions here indicated means that a number of perversions have been built up subconsciously in the human creature's use of himself in everyday activity, and, as a result, many individuals sooner or later become aware of the presence of some shortcomings. It is probable that only one in twenty of such shortcomings ever reaches the sphere of consciousness, and so he continues to exist within a danger zone of psychophysical shortcomings of which he is not conscious, but which impede his progress at every turn. Mind-wandering recognized as a shortcoming, its relation to self-preservation. The shortcoming to which the individual will awaken will be one which interferes with his immediate activities outside himself, in reading, for instance, or when he is attempting to learn something, or to learn to do something, and as a matter of fact, the shortcoming that has been recognized as interfering more than any other in this connection is the shortcoming concerned with his inability, as he would put it, to keep his mind on the particular work with which he is immediately engaged. In other words, the shortcoming which is commonly known as mind-wandering. Now, what is mind-wandering? In the attempt to answer this query, we will begin with a consideration of the psychophysical processes concerned with direction and control within the human creature in the all-important sphere of self-preservation. In the beginning of things, all growth and development must surely have resulted from a form of consciousness of need. For the growth and development of the creature is and always has been associated with new experiences which involve new activities. These activities, the response to some stimulus or stimuli, result from the consciousness of some need or needs within or without the organism, the presence and recognition of need being essential to the evolutionary process. Footnote. Many readers may not agree with me on this point. But it will be seen that all that is necessary to my argument is a recognition of the place of need the requirement of a new way of linking up with environment, so that the rest of my argument is not affected by belief or disbelief on this point. End of footnote. The recognition of a need denotes a state of consciousness of a need, and the primary activity or activities which is the response to this consciousness of a need or needs involves new experiences in the spheres of direction and control. The process of evolution depends upon the continuous repetition of such primary experiences, or group of experiences, this repetition resulting in the establishment of a use, or what is termed habit or instinct, and in the satisfaction of the need or needs. In connection with the theory of conscious activity in the early stages of the creature's development, we should recall the time when a pair of eyes, for instance, became a need. It is quite conceivable that, after the consciousness of this need had arisen, the growth and development of the organs of sight may have occupied a thousand or more years. It is also conceivable that, when the eyes had become developed, it may have needed a conscious effort, perhaps of years, 
to open the eyelids and likewise to close them, and that the repetition of this conscious effort week by week, month by month, and year by year may have caused this function of the eyelids to become habitual and subconscious, and to develop to that wonderful standard of use now enjoyed by the creature. Footnote. I am quite aware, of course, that sensitiveness to light, likewise the eyes, developed long before there were any eyelids. End of footnote. There can be little doubt that self-preservation, taking the word in its broadest sense, was the most fundamental of the creature's needs. For, first and foremost, the creature itself needed protection and preservation during its attempt to satisfy its specific needs. This need for self-preservation called for that satisfactory direction and control with which, in this sphere, we find wild animals and savages equipped, inasmuch as, owing to the particular circumstances which obtained in their case, the response to any stimulus arising from a need would be satisfactory in the spheres of direction and control. That is, it would be a response which would enable the creature to employ what would be for him the most satisfactory means whereby to securing the essential end, self-preservation. Most of us are aware of the marvelous accuracy in the use of the organism manifested by the wild animal or the savage in the various familiar spheres of activity concerned with self-preservation. A civilized creature does not manifest anything like the same standard of accuracy in the employment of the organism in the spheres of activity concerned with self-preservation. In other words, the civilized human being does not enjoy the same standard of effective direction and control as the savage and the wild animal, and it is the lack of this adequate standard in the human creature which manifests itself as a shortcoming in some sphere of activity. And, as I have said, in the sphere of learning something and learning to do something, the shortcoming most frequently recognized is that known as mind-wandering. Now, there exists a close connection between the shortcoming which is recognized as mind-wandering and the shortcoming which manifests itself as a seriously weakened response to a stimulus to an act or acts of self-preservation. To make this connection clear, we have only to consider the psychophysical processes involved in these two shortcomings to realize that in both cases these processes are the same. For the lack underlying these two shortcomings is the lack of an adequate standard of direction and control in the human creature, manifesting itself in the one case in the broad sphere of self-preservation and in the other in the specific sphere of learning something or learning to do something. An act of self-preservation is the response to a stimulus or stimuli resulting from a fundamental need, and a satisfactory response depends upon the satisfactory direction and control of the psychophysical mechanisms which are engaged in the acts or acts of self-preservation. An attempt to learn something or to learn to do something is the natural response to a stimulus or stimuli resulting from a wish or need to learn something or to learn to do something, and a satisfactory response depends upon the satisfactory direction and control of the psychophysical mechanisms which are engaged in the acts of learning or learning to do something. It will thus be seen that the processes involved in the acts concerned with self-preservation or with learning or learning to do something are precisely the same. 
and it follows that, if in the sphere of self-preservation the direction and control are unsatisfactory, the response to the stimuli concerned with the needs of self-preservation will be unsatisfactory. And by the same rule, if in the sphere of learning and learning to do, the direction and control are unsatisfactory, the response to the stimuli concerned with the wish or needs in connection with the acts of attempting to learn something or of learning to do something will likewise be unsatisfactory. And this unsatisfactory response is manifested in everyday life in that shortcoming so common in our time called mind-wandering. We have now reached a point where we must consider the origin of the conception which led to our giving to this particular manifestation the name of mind-wandering. A person decides to learn something or to learn to do something. The conception involved in this decision immediately starts a series of activities of the psychophysical mechanisms involved, those concerned with direction and control being of vital importance to a satisfactory result, which in this instance is the ability to learn something or to learn to do something. Where a person succeeds in this connection, he is not likely to become conscious of such a shortcoming as mind-wandering, for the success of his attempt means that his conception of the act to be performed involves the employment of satisfactory means whereby he will be able to gain his desired end. In such a case, the activities of the psychophysical mechanisms involved in his attempt will be the result of satisfactory direction and control. On the other hand, where a person does not succeed in his attempt to learn something or to learn to do something, the failure of his attempt means that there are defects in his conception of the act to be performed, in the sense that this conception does not involve the employment of satisfactory means whereby he will be able to gain his desired end. In such a case, the activities of the psychophysical mechanisms involved in his attempt will be the result of unsatisfactory direction and control, resulting in a misdirected use of the psychophysical mechanisms, and hence his inability to keep them operating on the satisfactory means whereby he will be able to gain his desired end. The whole procedure is an attempt to communicate with points of vantage along the lines of communication which are unreliable, resulting in a shortcoming which reaches the consciousness of the ordinary person as an inability to attend to, or as we say, to keep the mind upon the work in hand. And hence it is called mind-wandering. As a matter of fact, the defective use of the mechanisms which is responsible for such conditions cannot be adequately described as mind-wandering, seeing that it is the manifestation of a harmful and misdirected action and reaction, not only in connection with those processes commonly spoken of as mind, but throughout the whole psychophysical organism. It is the manifestation of that imperfectly coordinated condition which is associated with an unreliable sense of feeling, sensory appreciation, concerned with unsatisfactory direction and control, and which in the course of its development has gradually weakened the response of the human creature to stimuli in the sphere of self-preservation. In this connection it is important to remember that the savage creature depended chiefly upon the sense of feeling in the spheres of direction and control, and, as his sense of feeling, sensory appreciation, was comparatively reliable, the activities thus directed and controlled 
would be associated with an increasing response to the stimulus for self-preservation. A civilized creature also depends chiefly upon the sense of feeling in the spheres of direction and control. But as the sense of feeling, sensory appreciation, in his case has now become harmfully unreliable, the activities thus directed and controlled are becoming more and more associated with a weakening response to the stimulus to self-preservation. This all points to a general weakening in the psychophysical directing and controlling forces of the human creature, a weakening which has been brought about by the fact that man has continued to depend upon subconscious guidance in his endeavors to meet the demands of the civilizing plan and to rely upon instincts which have survived their usefulness and upon the harmful guidance of defective sense registers, feeling. Footnote. The fact that an individual happens to exhibit satisfactory specific direction and control in some particular activity does not confute this statement, indeed only serves to strengthen it, as I shall endeavor to show throughout the pages of this book. In this connection, I have found in my professional work that too often a person will consider a psychophysical experience to be quite satisfactory, when I, as an expert, know it to be in reality unsatisfactory. In such a case, the supposedly satisfactory experience is a delusive and harmful experience on the part of the person concerned of feeling and thinking he is right when he is actually wrong. In fact, the experience is really an unsatisfactory one, but he does not know it. And so, when later he becomes dissatisfied, he does not attribute his dissatisfaction to his own psychophysical experiences, but to other people, surroundings, something wrong somewhere, always believing the cause to be without instead of within the organism. End of footnote. Experience follows experience in the human creature's activities. Some of these experiences satisfactory, but the majority unsatisfactory. And the creature may be satisfied for the moment, only to be again dissatisfied, however, with the varying results of attempted accomplishment. And the psychophysical experiences involved do not make for confidence in regard to any attempts which he may be forced to make in the future to meet the demands of civilization. When conditions such as these are present in the human creature, success is hardly possible. Indeed, failure will be almost certain to result, even though he may devote to the accomplishment of his aims the time deemed necessary to ensure success. The natural result of his experiences of failure, or comparative failure, is that in time he will come to give consideration to the cause or causes involved in these experiences. And this consideration is of special interest to us, because it practically always leads him to the same conclusion, namely that his failure is due to quote-unquote mind-wandering. Let us now follow out his consideration of the facts in detail. He sets out to learn something or to learn to do something, and proceeds, as he would put it, to give his mind to his work, in accordance with his conception of this phrase. But he soon discovers that his mind is not on his work, that it has become more occupied, as it were, with some other trend of thought. He therefore proceeds to make a special effort, as he would say, to keep his mind on the original task at hand. 
Now, it is highly probable that he has never given consideration to the means whereby required for such a special effort, for if he had, he would probably have awakened to the fact that he did not have within his control the means whereby a special effort of this kind could prove satisfactory. However this may be, the fact remains that in spite of all his efforts to keep his mind on what he is doing, the process he thinks of as mind-wandering is repeated, with the result that after a certain number of repetitions of this experience, he becomes convinced that the cause of his failure is his inability to keep his mind on what he is doing. Just think of the psychophysical disaster that is here indicated, for it means that the human creature has reached that dangerous stage in connection with the employment of his psychophysical mechanisms when the response to a stimulus arising from a need is ineffective, erratic, and produces a state of confusion. The seriousness of this inability of the human creature to keep his mind on what he is doing is widely recognized, and this recognition has led to the almost universal adoption of what is called concentration as the cure to mind-wandering. Unfortunately, this remedy, as I shall show later, is in itself a most harmful and delusive psychophysical manifestation, and has been adopted without any consideration being taken of its effects upon the organism in general, or of the psychophysical processes involved in what is called learning to concentrate. Footnote. It is of interest to remember that the recognition of the defect called mind-wandering long antedated the conception of concentration as a remedy. I must refer my readers to the chapter on concentration for a fuller discussion of this important question. For the moment, I wish merely to point out that I am not here objecting to concentration in the sense which implies a number of things going on, moving at the same time and converging on a common consequence, a form of concentration which is present in the processes involved in the psychophysical manifestations of the normal child at play and of the competent artisan or artist engrossed in his work, and which simply implies a condition of coordination. On the other hand, the form of concentration to which I am objecting is that which implies fixating on one thing, quote-unquote bringing the mind to bear on one object. For just the same reason that I object to that conception in education, which seems to justify people in considering the essential aim of educational procedure to be the securing of ends by specific methods and gaining, irrespective of the means whereby the psychophysical mechanisms are employed in general during the attempts to gain these ends. End of footnote. End of section 4.